love that song, Dressed in His Righteousness, Alone, Faultless, to Stand Before the Throne. Isn't that so good, so true? And it is our hope. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter, chapter 5. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, feel free to ask your neighbor, don't be ashamed, where that might be found in the Bible. Maybe even if you need to borrow a Bible, it could get you a chance to get a little closer to a neighbor, too, to remain warm this morning as we're dealing with no heat. So I'm thankful nobody has left yet and is sticking it out with us. Uh, we're continuing, as is our custom, to go through books of the Bible as we preach. And so we've reached chapter 5 and been in it for a few weeks. We're really concentrating in on elders and what it means to be an elder in the church, and why is that important, and what should they be doing, and how should it be done. So let's, let's read that text together. 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll go through verse 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, and as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Chief Shepherd, we ask that as we come to your word, you would shepherd our souls this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this past summer, I read a book about Winston Churchill. It was fairly fascinating. It was based on a bunch of diary and journal entries of people during the 1930-1940s area. And one entry was particularly interesting. It was by an English woman, and uh, she said this, If I had to spend a life with a man, I would choose Mr. Chamberlain. Mr. Chamberlain was the former prime minister, a statesman, everybody tended to like. But I think I would sooner have Mr. Churchill if there was a storm or a shipwreck. He has a funny face, like a bulldog. Like, like the one on our street that chases away all the stray dogs and cats in our neighborhood. And that might not be the most complimentary of a, of a description of Mr. Churchill, but what was the point? In a time of crisis, when life seems to be coming apart, you need a strong leader, whom Winston Churchill proved to be, although not without fault, but he was a leader who led his country through World War II in 1940. The principle stands, when you face strong trials, you need strong leaders. First Peter, a letter written to a persecuted church who were going through all sorts of difficulties, uh, comes to a point in the passage where it shows, hey, you need strong spiritual leadership, and it comes in the form of elder. He addresses, after talking about the fiery trial that is coming upon the people, suffering for the name of Christ, he says, now you elders, shepherds, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You understand the situation that they were in. Nero is the emperor at the time. 
Whether or not this is a statewide persecution from the government, that's probably not the case, but it could be at least ramping up. They don't have any support from the government, to say the least, so their friends, family, their social groups marginalizing them, persecuting them. They need some help. How are they not going to scatter? How are they not going to fall apart? Well, first, Peter's writing to them to remind them of who their identity is in Christ, right? They have a living hope in Christ in the resurrection. They have this new status and identity as the people of God. But not only all that identity, they also have strong spiritual leaders in elders. So we slowed down. We looked at this for four parts I looked at some introductory assumptions about elders. Where does this even come from? We looked at some important questions for understanding the passage. Why is Peter calling himself a fellow elder, and how does it tie into the context? We looked at some intrinsic responsibilities of elders, the domain, and then last week, really, the duty of the elder, the shepherd, the pastor. What are they supposed to be doing? And the picture you get of the pastor, far from the the CEO type of model who just calls the shots from afar, or the celebrity pastor who's not accessible to the sheep, you get a picture of a literal shepherd. What does the literal shepherd do? He feeds, protects, leads, and cares for the flock. He is among the sheep, putting in work. And that's very important as they face persecution And so now we come to this section in verse 2 through 3 that is not so much about what a shepherd is to do as to how he is actually supposed to do it. This is the manner of shepherding. So I'm talking about the dispositions. So if you have on your bulletin there the handout, you'll see the emboldened part, the dispositions of the pastor or the shepherd. The dispositions regarding three particular areas come out here, his calling, his compensation, and his congregation. And you'll notice that this takes the form of three antitheses. You have a a wrong way to do it and a right way. So let's look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Three couplets, so let's spend time in those, the manner, the disposition of the pastor. First, looking at his calling. Verse 2, not under compulsion. He's to shepherd the flock, not under compulsion, but willingly. That is to say, he shouldn't be forced to do it. You could think of children who were raised in a Christian home. Their father was a pastor, and they feel this pressure. I can't let my parents down. I need to become a pastor. That's not what should do it. You shouldn't have any other compulsion than a divine compulsion upon you. How might you know that you have a divine compulsion? We talk about it in three ways. How do you know you are supposed to be a pastor? First, you have a desire to do the work. You understand what that is entailing. You're going to be held accountable to God for how you shepherd the sheep. You're going to have a a life of difficulty and challenges, facing persecution, the difficult things that happen in a church. Do you still want to do that? Yes, you want to do that? Okay. Then secondly, do you meet the moral or the the qualifications as outlined in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1? What did we talk about there earlier? Those revolve the five C's. Character, 
competency, care, conviction, and those viewed over time, in that you were faithful over time as you've been tested, give a man some credibility. So if he has a desire to do the work, he has the qualifications to do the work. Thirdly, the fact that you know that you should be doing this is the congregation also affirms those things and wants you to become their pastor. That is one way in which you know you are not doing this under compulsion, but rather have been called into this by God. And so the picture of the pastor is not like, you'd say, a drafted soldier who just has to get into it, but rather is one of a volunteer. So he wants to do the work and then also is called to do the work by God, and that, if you look at church history, has been very important to those who have been on the mission field or in long-term pastorates. As they face the challenges, the difficulties that come with pastoring a church, oftentimes they lean back on the fact that I'm called to do this. I'm called by God to do this. So that's in regard to his calling. You have to understand, you don't get into this and pastor unwillingly. I think I I was in seminary, and one of my professors said this. He said, I think it's about 10% of people who graduate from seminary are in the ministry beyond 10 years. 10%. It's very low. Why is that? Well, think about it. I'm wrestling with my own heart. I'm wrestling with Satan and his temptations. I'm dealing with in the throes of conflicts in the church. Our pastors are maybe would take the brunt of the persecution if things go south in in the culture. All these things add to a certain level of stress and difficulty and challenges. And if you are not feeling as though you're called to this, then you will definitely give up. So that's the first area, the pastor's disposition, is he should be not functioning under compulsion. Second, in regards to his compensation, his wages, the money that he receives. Because he is entitled to some pay, a pastor can earn a living based on passages like 1 Corinthians 9. Those who preach the gospel have a right to live by the gospel. Uh, Those who teach in 1 Timothy 5 or rule well, those who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who preach and teach. The laborer is worthy of his wages. So we have texts in the Bible that speak of a pastor getting paid for what he's doing here, spending time in the word and prayer. Peter isn't talking about No one should get paid here. He's saying that should not be your primary motivation for why you're becoming a pastor. Look what it says here. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain. It used to be called filthy lucre in the King James translation. It is someone who is pursuing the pastorate for the purpose of gaining financially. And so that's the exact opposite of the motivation you want. There's a word used in the Bible for this type of person. It's called a hireling in John chapter 10. Someone who is a shepherd, but shepherding for the purpose of getting a paycheck, has no care for the sheep, has no concern for the sheep. So what happens when a wolf comes in? They're out. My life, my wages, all that's more important than potentially protecting the sheep. 
this pastor shepherd is after his own welfare rather than soul care. He's after material wealth rather than spiritual health. That's what's driving him. A friend of mine once told me, some pastors preach to eat and others eat to preach. Some pastors preach as in they're just having a job to try and get some food. Others are eating to get some nutrients so that they can get out and preach the word of God. And so we have an example of this in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the story of Elisha and Gehazi, that uh, great story with Naaman. When uh, Naaman comes to Elisha, Elisha tells him to go and bathe in the Jordan so that he could get rid of his leprosy. What happens? Naaman does that and even comes to faith, it seems like, and comes back and he wants to bless Elisha with all these material goods and money and clothes and Elisha is like, no, 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 not wanting uh, Naaman to be confused at all as if, like, God could be bribed or needs repayment or anything. He wants to com com communicate God is a God of grace and mercy. And so he's, no, take your stuff. And Naaman's like, okay, but you have Gehazi, who's the servant of Elisha. What? He's like, what are you doing? Why are you turning away all those gifts and the money? And so he actually chases down Naaman and is like, actually, um, Elisha could use a little bit of money. And he comes and grabs, he's like, I'll take two talents of silver. And Naaman's like, sure, take it. And what happens? Elisha's like, did you not know that I was, my spirit was with you? I knew exactly what you're doing. Naaman's leprosy is now upon you. That's this, this spirit of hunger for money and wealth. It's wrong. It's not right. It's not the motivation for a pastor. Yes, we can be paid and have our material needs met, but that is not what we are after as pastors. And there are plenty of people, especially the ones you see on television, flying around in their private jets, mansions, 20 cars, all this disgusting stuff, and they're pleading with their hearers that they would just support their ministry with the last bit of those poor people's paychecks. That's a hireling, and they will give an account to Christ. Instead, what does it say? You should be eager for the work. Eager, that is, could be also translated devoted zeal, rather than gain of money or fame or power or attention. The elders serve out of zealous devotion to Christ. We love him, and so we love his people. We recognize he's gifted us for the express purpose of feeding and protecting and leading his sheep. That's what motivates us. And then the third area in which a pastor's disposition manifests itself is in the congregation itself. Verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock domineering okay let's look at this group of people in your charge that word is that has been allotted to you it is your portion it's it's the word from the old testament that the people israel would uh it would be used to describe the land that has been given to them that they were to steward that they were to take care of and so the the picture is god giving these shepherds, a particular group of people that they are to steward and protect and lead and feed. And then it's to be done in a very particular way. How is that to be done? It is not domineering or 
lording it over them. Lording it over them. That is to dominate someone, to, to be taking advantage of them in a dictatorial or oppressive way. It's the word used in the Old Testament for those nations who have been conquered by other nations, and you do everything you can to subject them, to put them in their place, dominate them, subjugate them, oppress them. Peter's saying here, make sure that the people that have been entrusted into your care, you are not doing that. That's exactly the opposite way you are to do that. And it's crazy that this even has to be mentioned, that spiritual leaders would need to be on guard from domineering over those in their charge. But the reality is, it's actually more common than you think. Why might that be? Well, the church is a very vulnerable people, for instance. Many things in our scriptures lead us to be gentle, meek, humble. We're called to follow our leaders. So it's no surprise then that certain individuals who love power, who love authority, will find themselves gravitating towards positions of authority within the church when people will just follow them and they can abuse their power. So what we find is that popes are not just in the Catholic Church. We have popes in the Protestant Church, people who take upon themselves authority to, to say, you need to be doing this, that, or the other in areas where the Bible ascribes us a certain amount of liberty. They say, nope, you need to be doing this, 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 this. Their authority extends beyond scriptures towards their preferences, and they lord it over the flock in harsh, demanding, abusive ways. Peter says, don't be like that. Do not be like that. Jesus says, don't be like that. He says in Mark 10, Jesus calls the disciples over. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. We have a living and breathing, well, at least at the time, Example of this in scripture from 3 John. William preached on this last uh, couple weeks. It's Diotrephes. Listen to this. This is the first di dictatorial pastor lording it over his authority, lording his authority over the congregation. 3 John, verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. He's not accountable to anybody. He doesn't acknowledge apostolic authority. So if I come, John says, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And he describes it more. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, he wants to and, and puts them out of the church. This is him using his own authority to make unilateral decisions, putting people out of the church, abusing, not having accountability. Jesus says, Peter says, that's not how this is to be done. Instead, what are we to do? We are to be examples to the flock, not cowboys driving the sheep or the cattle, but instead shepherds leading out in front, letting people follow our pattern. And what happens when that is the case? What happens if you have gentle, 
lowly, humble, pastors who are concerned about godliness, their speech, their actions, their love, reconciliation within the church. What happens when that is the case? The church becomes just like that. And that is the goal, brothers and sisters. We want to be faithful pastors and want you to follow us. And we say, follow us as I follow Christ. Now, to conclude these sort of dispositions of the pastor, it's very clear to me that what Peter is doing is just merely painting a picture of Christ. Not to be doing things under compulsion. Okay, that could describe Christ completely from Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What that leads me to see is that was Christ who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, the glory of God, but he's like, in fact, I'd prefer to go and be a humble servant to give my life for the people of God. And then John 4, 31 through 34, his disciples come to him and says, hey, you know, aren't you hungry? Don't you have some food you want to eat? He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So they said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. That's his delight, his desire. He's not serving under compulsion. What about for shameful gain, pursuing riches, serving God and his people for pursuit of riches? And what does it say about Christ? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Spiritual rich is this what what's he's talking about. Christ gave it up so that we would be blessed by him. And then what about not domineering? Was Christ the domineering one? No. What does he say in Mark 10 after he says, hey, the Gentiles lorded over them? What does he say about himself? It shall not be so among you, but whoever be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man himself came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Jesus is the model of servant leadership. He doesn't domineer, dominate, abuse, rather. John chapter 13, is not Jesus the one who put on the towel and bent down and washed his disciples' feet? And he said this, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He's not, he's not saying I'm nothing, I'm nobody. He's like, you call me teacher, yes, I have the all wisdom, all knowing. I teach you everything, you submit to me, yes. You call me Lord, yes, rightfully so. I still the seas, I raise people from the dead, and yet... If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. Don't domineer. Give them an example. That's exactly what Christ does. And, of course, the greatest example of this whole thing is him laying down his life for his people. Do you see that the gospel itself is the, the example of Christ-like willingness to serve God 
his love for his people going to the greatest lengths of meeting their greatest need, dying for their sins. So this is to you today, maybe, who are trying to figure out Christ Christianity or trying to wonder if this is what you should be thinking about or interested in. I'm calling out to you today that our example of spiritual leadership is Christ, but he's more than an example. He's our Savior. And that's why in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, he, he announces himself in these great ways. He says, if anyone hungers, what is he? He's the bread of life. If anyone thirsts, he says, come to me. I'll have living waters come up from within you. If anyone wants life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If anyone is in darkness, I am the light of the world. Are you unrighteous? First Peter tells us, he died the righteous for the unrighteous. Are you sick? He is the great physician. Are you a sinner? It says here in 1 Peter chapter 3, he died for our sins. Are you guilty? In Romans chapter 8, there is now no for, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you perishing? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is what's offered to all from Christ. He's not only our example, but he's the Savior. Turn to him, repent of your sins, and you will not perish. You will not suffer under the wrath of God forever and ever. You will be forgiven. You will be reconciled to Christ. You will have him as your chief shepherd, shepherding your souls for all eternity. So look to the chief shepherd. Look to him, pastors, as our ultimate example in this. And brothers and sisters, look to him as your savior. So we look then at the inherent responsibilities, the domain, the duty, and the dispositions. Now let's turn to the impetus for faithfulness. Why should pastors do this? And then why should they do it well? Look at verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who's the you? It is the pastors, the elders. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the Greco-Roman world of Peter's day, athletes or uh, military victors receive a crown made of wreaths or uh, leaves. And these crowns, of course, would fade and perish. And pastors can work for crowns like that in this life. What does that look like? Working for wealth, comfort, status within the local community, church denomination or network, book sales, podcast downloads, Twitter followers. That's the crown that you, pers you pursue that fades away. But this crown given to us by the chief shepherd at his return will never fade away. It's imperishable. And so Peter reminds the elders not to work for selfish gain or power or fame, but rather for the imperishable crown of glory. That's the reward. Now, it's difficult to know just by looking and reading this passage and the rest of the New Testament whether or not this is something additional to what's already been described in this letter as the inheritance or uh, as it says in Verse 4 of chapter 1, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
or that glory and that, that honor that's given in verse 7 of chapter 1. The tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or verse 13, preparing your minds for action, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks of, of this future inheritance that is ours in very similar terms. But there are other texts in Scripture that make it seem that those who serve in ministry should, and are, if they're faithful, should expect some sort of reward. What that is exactly is not entirely clear. We shouldn't think that they are getting a physical crown to wear on their head necessarily, but it's a crown of glory, honor. And so 1 Corinthians 3, for instance, talks about this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, although the Bible speaks of a crown that's given to all believers at the end, you could look at uh, text such as, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Timothy 4, James 1, 12, Revelation 2, 10. It seems like with shepherding, a faithful shepherd receives some sort of honor and glory, even extending beyond that. And so I think of and grab a couple of different scriptures to say this is a public honor and maybe even entry into even greater service and joy in the Lord's presence. I'll take that from Matthew 25, verse 22 through 23. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So hardworking, selfless shepherds may not have the earthly goods and accomplishments to show anything, but... The chief shepherd at his return will give the unfading crown of glory. And that is the impetus for why we should do this well. Meeting the Lord, the chief shepherd, who entrusted his sheep to you, you want to be found, pastor, brother pastors, as one who receives that unfading crown of glory. Now, for you as a congregation, I want you to think about this. Christ is returning and giving rewards. What are you living for as well? Do you realize that this life is but 70, 80 years, and then what? Eternity. What are you giving your life to even now? Is it service to the Lord, taking what he calls us to do and doing it? Gladly, joyfully, enduring trials, serving the church, sharing the gospel, working diligently to the Lord? Or are you living for wealth, comfort, ease, pleasure, self-satisfaction? We ought to be thinking there's a life to come. 
Store up treasures in heaven. That's where we want to be. So that's the impetus to faithful eldering. And now we end with the intended regard for elders. How is the congregation to be interacting and responding to the pastoring of the elders? Look at verse 5 with me. Likewise, that is continuing on in the same discussion, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. There's that word subject again. We're very familiar with that term. We've seen it. Chapter 2 and 3. Roles and relationships of masters and slaves, husbands and wives. Be subject to one another. And we don't have a negative view of that. We actually see it as a way of honoring and glorifying God and a design for how he's set up the world to flourish. In government and citizens, in the workplace, employee, employers, in the home, husbands and wives, in the church, members to pastors. And so we don't bucket this, ooh, subject, no way. I describe the, the one who is being subject to as, as a purposeful investing of their lives, resources, and talents to the good of the leader and the institution to which they are a part of. That's being subject. Following gladly, willfully. Now why are only the younger men addressed here? You could translate it just younger. There are several explanations for why that is the case here. Why, not, why doesn't he say everyone be subject? The rest of the scriptures teach be subject to your elders. First, uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Some people think that this is now a new section that's just describing older to younger people. I just need to respect older people. But since it's already been talking about elders here, why would it shift to older people? No, it's talking about elders, younger people. Some people think this is a subordinate, lesser group of officials like deacons. Some people think it's new believers, perhaps newly baptized. Or this could be a specific group of youth in the church. None of those quite work for how the words to be translated. Younger it has to do more than with spiritual maturity. So it could be Peter saying, hey, these pastors, the spiritually mature among you, now younger those who are less mature, be subject to the elders. Follow them. So it's the rest of the congregation. If you're uncomfortable with that, then you could just say it's addressing younger people, younger men specifically, who maybe are zealous but don't have the, the knowledge and experience that the pastors do, and so they have to kind of temper them a little bit. So he's addressing younger people. But I take it more as it's the rest of the congregation and they are called to submit, be subject to the pastors, follow the pastors. The scriptures teach this other places, like, first, like Hebrews chapter 13, 17, obey your leaders and, and submit to them as those who watch over your souls. This is a good thing. Now one note on submission. Submission does not mean mute acceptance of decisions. There is a place for expressing disagreement and voicing your concerns. It doesn't mean, oh, the pastor said that, but that doesn't seem like it goes with the Bible, or they're doing that and want us to do this, but that doesn't seem like it fits with the Bible. I can't say anything, though, because they're pastors. 
the idea of being subject to is following, but also being respectful and bringing things to our attention that might be off from the scriptures. Because the Bible does say that pastors are still held accountable. In 1 Timothy 5.19, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. A pastor can't just do whatever he wants here, nor do we not need the, the encouragement or the understanding of the congregation, but rather it's just this is how God has designed it. Spiritually qualified and mature men lead the sheep, protect the sheep, oversee the sheep, and you all follow. But that is not in, a, in any way that either goes beyond Scripture or goes against Scripture. I hope you understand that. Now, if you struggle to submit to church leadership, if this is an area where you're just like, man, this is hard to do, and you always find yourself kind of pushing back against the elders and like, ah, how can I help you? Well, let me point out two ways that I think the Bible actually helps you. One is you realize that elders are appointed by God, the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and following, he says, keep watch, this is Paul, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So these are guys or men who have been placed above you by God's divine ordination, appointment. And that should help you. Okay, this is a way that... I can think of serving God is by submitting to these men. Are we perfect? No, that's not what that means. But it is that saying, okay, God has placed these people over me. I'm going to honor them and submit to them. Second, God will hold you accountable for your submission or lack of to the elders. That text we always quote from Hebrews 13, 17 about us keeping watch over your souls. It also says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We will give an account to how we treat you, but you also will give an account to how you interacted and treated us. Well, what else do the scriptures teach in regards to your role to the pastors? Well, it says imitate them. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You're called to respect and esteem them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We already mentioned compensation, so honoring them, double honor. That could mean meeting their material uh, needs. The scriptures teach, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. And then finally, you are to pray for them. Paul the Apostle, who's the awesome apostle, right? missionaries, planting churches. What does he say? 
He says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. In Ephesians 6, he says, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in my opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. You all, if you would pray for us, we want the gospel to go out from here. We want people to be saved. We want people to be shepherded, protected, cared for. We want our church to be healthy. Pray for us as pastors. We want the same team of pastors to be together for a long time, faithfully serving together, and we can't do that in our own strength. We need the Lord's blessing. And he often does that through the prayers of his people. So that's where we're at in 1 Peter chapter 5. We spent four weeks on that because I do believe that this is a crucial component to the life of the church. You understanding your role and responsibility to pastors, pastors knowing their job description, what are we supposed to be giving ourselves to? And I thought spending some time in here, bringing to the surface, bringing out those things that are oftentimes assumed for the church. So you hopefully have been blessed by slowing down as we look to this, and that no doubt, as you even have seen and understood from this passage about Christ being the chief shepherd, you realize that all we're trying to do is emulate the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us and servant in servant leadership so we might do the same for you all. Pray for us and may we continue faithfully in our work, brother pastors. Let's pray together. Our Father, now we bow our heads in worship and adoration to you. We come to you as the shepherd to whom we're ultimately accountable to. Thankfully, you are a merciful shepherd, a loving shepherd, a gracious and protective shepherd. That even when our own hearts and souls we want to do the wrong thing, you prick our consciences. Holy Spirit, you convict us of sin. Jesus, you put the crook around us and bring us back towards you. We're so thankful to be your sheep under your care. And then to be among your flock and to be part of this church, Emmaus Bible Church, the church of God in Omaha, mainly Emmaus. It is a privilege to be a part of this group. These people you've brought together with all the different backgrounds and different pasts, different experiences, different life phases, different stages of maturity. We're all in it together. And I'm thankful for the men you've called and tasked with the role of shepherding among us. I've been pastored by these brothers. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us would be working and motivated towards meeting our chief shepherd at his return and receiving that unfading crown of glory. Until then, may our motivations be that and not uh, wrestling and doing these things under compulsion or for shameful gain or exercising authority in a domineering way, but instead being like our loving servant leader, Christ, laying our very lives down for the flock. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.